Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. From the vaults, you are listening to a talk from May 2018 by Dana Joya, internationally acclaimed and award-winning poet, former chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts, and current Poet Laureate of California. He discusses one of his heroes, Walt Whitman, Whitman's great love of opera, and how that influenced his life and work. Uh, I'm delighted to be here today. Now, people introduced me as a Poet Laureate of California, the former chairman of the NEA, a professor at USC. I'm a working class guy from Hawthorne, California. Uh, I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Uh, I was raised mostly by people who didn't speak English. Um, my dad was Sicilian, my mom was Mexican. Uh, and the arts were transformative in my life. Uh, I first learned, mu uh, the other thing I am is a failed composer. Uh, when I was young, I wanted to be you know, a musician, a composer, but I just really wasn't good enough. Uh, and then I got interested in poetry, which sort of took my attention. But I began piano lessons with Sister Camille Cecile uh, uh, at second grade. And I played piano. I played uh, clarinet, bass clarinet, tenor saxophone. And, I, and I've always loved music. My, you know, my, uh, my dad used to put on uh, Mario Lanza records and Caruso records and, and opera. He never went to the opera, but it, you know, he liked listening to it. Uh, so I've had a great interest in opera. So what I wanted to do uh, today is really talk about opera in a way you probably haven't thought of it, which is that opera as a literary form. Uh, you know, we think of opera as musical, but it's a different kind of music than a symphony. And I'll tell you how opera began, how opera started. And uh, I think this is very relevant for the, the work of, you know, the work of art, you know, which is this opera about Walt Whitman we're going to talk about, and then I'll move into talking about Walt Whitman. Uh, I also have written the libretti for four operas, and I've worked with you know productions of operas and with singers, and so I have a, a perspective too about the words. Now, opera began in Italy. Big surprise, uh, in the, in the city of Florence in 1597. And really, if you think about it, 1599 to 1600, uh, those are the years that are pivotal for opera. So what's going on in Italy at that point uh, is the Renaissance. And you have this rediscovery. Uh, you know, people are, uh, at that point, if you're a lawyer, you're a doctor, you're a statesman, you speak Italian, but you write everything in Latin. So you have this deep relationship with, with Latin that you learn you know, from your earliest education, but you don't really learn Greek. At this point, they start to read Greek, and they want to experience the Greek classics. And one of the things that they really are interested in is Greek tragedy. Now, if you, if you think about Greek tragedy, you know, we think of it as a very highfalutin, formal kind of drama. And in some sense, it was. But how was, was, was Greek drama performed? They performed it in an outdoor theater, and who came? Every citizen of Athens. In the front rows, they reserved for the young men who were just joining the army. And it was a civic celebration, and the entire town came, 
uh, and they voted on what they liked. The opera, now you, you don't have a lot of, you know, of, uh, of, of amplification available at that point. So they have masks that are like megaphones. And that's why they're wearing the masks. Uh, and what does the chorus do? The chorus dances. You know, and so you have essentially in Greek drama something very similar to a Broadway show. You have actors in costumes singing with dances. And a lot of times they would say, you know, frankly, you know, your version of Oedipus wasn't very good, but the dancing was fantastic. You're the winner. And you know, we have rec you know, recordings that it was a, a complete performance. So these Italians are saying, how do we get in touch with this great legacy of Greeks? And they said, let's do an exact replica of Greek drama. Now, you already know what this is. Now, your name is, my dear? Rita. Rita. Now, if, if you told me. It's Italian. Oh, uh, see. Uh, if you told me a story about your life, and you just told me an interesting thing that happened, and your name is? Carolee. And Carolee and I said, okay, we're going to act it out for you. We're going to put on costumes and act, out, and act it out for you. We're ready. Uh, and you looked at us, how accurate would our version be? <laughs> You'd say, well, you know, it's kind of like what happened to me. And that's what opera is. They decided that they were going to do an exact replica of Greek drama. And so they wrote you know, this poetic drama. They got you know, costumes. They got singers. The, they probably, in these early things, had certain kinds of dancing and spent a lot of money because they were done for usually for a, a, the, 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 a royal wedding or a coronation. Uh, and they created something that has very little to do with Greek tragedy. You know, uh, but it has the, the elemental characteristics, which is a, you know, a poetic story, which is told through song, a combination from the very, you know, and the early, the first, uh, you know, uh, opera, which is called Daphne, the, the, the myth of Daphne and Apollo, where he's, as he's trying essentially to, to, to rape her, she turns into a laurel tree. Um, very interesting story for Italians to tell, I think. I mean, uh, uh, and so it was there. In our, in our sense, it was all recitative. There was probably very little me melodies. And in fact, what survives of the first opera? None of the music. They didn't think the music was that important. The text, they saw opera as poetic drama, and the purpose of the music was to heighten the poetry. So you were essentially going to a poetic performance with music supporting it. Um, and then, but as opera went on, guess what happened? It's not difficult to predict. The music became more and more interesting. And then finally, they had, they had an Italian, this argument, uh, if you've ever seen Richard Strauss's Capriccio, they actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, relive this argument, which was prima la musica o prima la parole. What what's more important, the music, prima la music, musica, or prima la other words? And you know, we know what won, la musica. And so opera became more and more musical. But if you were an Italian theater goer, you pretty much understood every word. 
I mean, uh, and there was, you were still experiencing it as real theater. But something else happened to opera, which we still experience, will experience upstairs tonight uh, at Rigoletto, is that opera almost immediately became an international form. Because people would come to Italy and say, I love this stuff. So kings, dukes, princes would create uh, opera companies all over Europe, and they were staffed almost entirely by Italians. So, you know, I mean, Italians are always people that are, will travel anywhere for work. You know, like, you know, my, 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 you know, my family ended up from Sicily to Italy, you know, to Los Angeles for work. Uh, and so you created a double identity for opera. You had opera uh, sung in Italian for Italians where people uh, understood the text and, and, and experienced the text as poetry. You had very important poets writing, uh, writing operatic texts. But at the same time, you had everywhere else in the world uh, what was initially all Italian opera sung by Italians to audiences which didn't really know Italian. And so they would read the synopsis. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the Metropolitan Opera libretti, that you, the translations you get today, they're full of mistakes. Uh, they have incredibly bad translations. And so a story was created, which most of you I'm sure have heard, which is opera's got beautiful music, but the words are silly. The plots are silly. Uh, I think that's an entire uh, misunderstanding of opera, because opera uses words differently from the way you'd use them on the page, and it tells stories differently from the way a novel is. And so where the greatest prejudice against opera was in England, which is a country which essentially had almost no opera until the 20th century. And England, now, what is the greatest art form of 19th century England is the novel. In a novel, you think of George Eliot's Middlemarch, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, uh, uh, Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. You have a, a story which is told over, let's say, 300, 400. My wife and I, I'm a poet laureate of, of California. I drive all over the state. So I mean, I was in Modoc and Lassen County last week. I'm going to go to Inyo and um, Mono counties this week. I've got you know five, six hour drives. My wife and I listen to Anthony Trollope novels on tape. <laughs> And, 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 my, and when you pick it up, they're kind of intimidating because it'll say, back to the CD thing, it'll go 27 hours. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, know, uh, you can go to a lot of counties with one Trollope novel. But, that's, but the beauty of Trollope is you take the story and every little nuance of the story is told, every character's perspective is in. And it's the greatness, the greatest moment, I think, of, of modern British literature is the creation of the novel, which is the most intimate way we'll ever understand another person. Because a novel not only tells you the story, it tells you the story from inside the person. And, and this is so important uh, to civilization. Because what it does is it cultivates the notion that uh, my life is complicated and difficult, but your life is complicated and difficult. And yours is too. All of us today bring a, a, a whole life into this room. I have no way of knowing all of the things that are going on in your life, good, bad, or indifferent. But what the novel does is train us to understand the complexity of the inner and outer lives of other people as they move through time in significant action. And so Trollope can spend 27 hours. 
Now, to my knowledge, only one composer in all history has spent 27 hours. That's Wagner for the ring. Uh, and if I said, well, you know, we're going to go to Rigoletto ton uh, tonight, and it'll be over sometime, uh, you know, uh, you know on, on Monday morning, you'd say, well, then I'm busy, and I'm busy. Uh, so what opera does, very necessarily, is it takes these stories and compresses them. So here are the, th the three things that you really need to know about operatic language, operatic poetry. Uh, because even now in the 21st century, 90 plus percentage of operas are written in verse and, and poetry. It works better. Uh, why? Because song and poetry are the same art. In the ancient world, what's, who knows the Latin word for song? Does anyone know? It's, it's the woman's name. Actually, I think it's a Met broadcast today. Carmen. Carmen means song. What else does it mean in Latin? It means poetry. What else does it mean? It means magic spell. So poetry and song are the same art. That's why opera, even if it wants to become prosaic, always comes back to poetry, because there's something inherently song-like about poetry. So the first thing about poetry is that it requires, excuse me, opera is it requires lyrical language. Now, lyrical language is not the language of the novel. The novel is kind of realistic, detailed, you know. And so in poetry, you want the one detail that evokes all of these other things. In a novel, you want all of the details so you can exactly see it. If you read, anybody here read uh, Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities? Great, it's a great book. It tells you what they're wearing, how much it cost, where they yeah, bought them, yeah. you know? And, it, it, and that's what makes the novel work, is it, you know, all the details about everybody there. So everybody who comes in the room, you know how much they make, where they shop, what's the state of their marriage, you know, yeah. uh, you know how many bills they have. <laughs> Opera doesn't, you have lyrical language that's evocative. You know, uh, so, you know, uh, Mimi, you know, asks Rodolfo in La Boheme, uh, uh, to introduce himself, he goes, Qui son? Who am I? Son un poeta. I'm a poet. Uh, what do I do? Che cosa faccio? Scrivo. Uh, e come vivo? You know, what do I do? I write. Come vivo? How do I make a living? Vivo. <laughs> I exist. You know? And so in that one word, you know, you know, uh, you know, come vivo, vivo, Tom Wolfe would give you a whole chapter of how the guy makes a living, you know? And but Rodolfo does it in one word, I get by, vivo, I exist. Uh, and so you have, you have lyrical language. The stories have to be compressed. So the novel will tell you, I mean, one of the things that drives me crazy about a lot of TV shows now is they have so much backstory that, you know, you know there's so many flashbacks, the plot never moves forward, you know? Uh, you don't do that in opera. Uh, you know, you have, you tend to take a big story and you break it, like you think of La Boheme, which is based on a novel. Puccini takes it and, and condenses it into four episodes. And the four episodes take you from the moment the lovers meet, uh, you know, uh, the joy that they experience in their life, their breakup, and their reconciliation as she, you know, as she dies. Uh, and so, and there's whole things, there's whole years in that plot that are, that are, take, that are you know, taken out. The first two acts, describe essentially in real time, you know, about an hour of their existence. Uh, the second two acts, you know, take whole years. And it works because you see the significant moments. So you have lyrical language, 
you have a compressed plot. And then, uh, let's say, you know, I'm going to give you tickets to Rigoletto, and I tell you that, you know, that we have, you know, uh, Juan Jesus Rodriguez singing, or you can hear Dana Joya singing. Which one are you going to pick? <laughs> the first one. You're not going to hear me sing. So, this, and the third thing about opera is once they began putting it on, they realized, like all theatrical performances, like movies and everything else, uh, you have to create lyrical language and situations which cre allow great performers to give, to impersonate, to become great figures, to be powerful figures, so that when someone walks on the stage through the music, through the drama, through the poetry, they command your attention. And that is the real power of, of opera, I think. You know, you, can, you, know, you take you know, uh, some heartless you know, person, you know, uh, give them a good opera seat, and they weep when Mimi dies. Because somehow, the, the, by creating you know, this lyric moment of a concentrated plot with a powerful you know, performer, they can come into you and break through your defenses, which is what all art does, is to melt all the, the defenses that we have in our lives and allow people to experience that thing. Same with poetry does, because all of us go through life with all of these barriers between us and the world. Just to drive to the music center today, I mean, how much, how much tension and, and, you know, thing is that? I mean, you get through, you, see, you, you go through guarded life, and what art does is relax those and allow you to have a, a, a meaningful imaginative transaction. And you do that in opera necessarily through performers. You can write the greatest, in fact, there are operas that are wonderful music, but they don't allow, in a sense, the characters to become alive in an independent way where we can have this, this thing that somehow you have this direct transaction with somebody else at an absolutely pivotal moment in their life. And so, and the words are important too, you know. And so, now, so if you think of this form, uh, it has almost, from the first time people heard it, uh, it has captivated people. There are people, and I'm one of them, that to a certain degree, I am more greatly, I love all of the arts, but I'm more greatly moved by a great operatic performance than almost any other kind of artistic experience I have. There's something about the fact, and you think about this, this is what Wagner talks about, the Gesamtkunstwerk, the together artwork, where you take, and, and, and this is what the, the Viennese, the, excuse me, the, the Florentine intellectuals that created it. They thought of poetry, scenery, acting, music, dancing. You create this combined effect. So the, the Gesamtkunstwerk was not invented by Wagner, although he articulated it and, and controlled it. It was you know, essentially always inherent in opera. So you, know, you, you, know, you have this, and so it's captivated people. So now I'm going to move forward from 15, uh, you know, 1590s, 1600 to 19th century America. If you uh, went to New York in the 1840s, it's not a very big town. I mean, it's, you know, it's probably about, about the size of Glendale. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, you know, but it was you know, a big city. I mean, it was, you know, it was not even a half million people. And two of the most popular entertainments they had 
were Shakespeare and opera. Uh, Shakespeare was enjoyed by every class of people, as was opera. They were not considered at that point uh, highbrow forms. They were, they were like, they were, I think the things that are probably most similar to movies and Broadway musicals. It was something you wanted to do. Now, uh, there was a young boy named Walter Whitman. Uh, who was born on a farm in Long Island in 1819. I don't know if anybody have been to, to Whitman's homestead. Yeah, I mean it really is. It's really remarkably well preserved, uh, and uh, you know you could actually see the room that he slept in. And, and Whitman, uh, you know, was from a farming family, English and Dutch. They had nine kids, uh, one of whom died in infancy. And, and one of whom was developmentally disabled, the, the, the last one. So Wilton is from a big family, a farm family, and everyone in the family loved Walt, but he, you know how, you know, in family, everybody has an identity. You know, this is, you know, they'll say, well, is this the, they ask me, is this that, you know, but I won't tell you what I, they call him. Is that the bad brother? Is this the good brother? You know, Whitman was universally considered by his family as really charming but lazy. Uh, <laughs> You know, he would, you know, he would, he would, you know, uh, disappear. I have a son like this. He would disappear when there's work to be done. Uh, and so Whitman's in this large family. These are working people. These are people with not a lot of education. They have books. You know, they have the, the, you know, a few books. They've got uh, the Bible, the works of Shakespeare, you know, uh, you know in the farmhouse. And Whitman uh, leaves school at 11. Uh, which just doesn't surprise me because both of my, my Mexican grandfather and my Italian grandfather both left school at 11 because that's when a kid is old enough to start helping around the farm. And so Whitman doesn't really like to be the farm work. So he goes off and becomes just an office boy. And then he starts to work for a printer. And really, uh, by his teens, he starts to work in newspapers. And this is what he does most of his uh, early life. In fact, he even starts a newspaper at one point, uh, which goes bankrupt you know, within a year, and actually no copies of the newspaper survive. So if you, ever, you know, if you ever come across one that says, Walt Whitman, editor, save it. <laughs> it's worth a lot of money. So he starts to do this, and, and, uh, you know, and he uh, just goes from newspaper to newspaper to newspaper. It's clear that everybody likes Whitman, but he's not a most dependable uh, Employer, and, and so this is what he, you know, the, what he does, and he loves, uh, he loves the big city. He loves, he loves nature. He's just an enthusiast, and so he comes through there. And so you see, between eleven and thirty-five, you know, he basically he learns how to operate a press. He learns how to write. He learns how to set type. Uh, he, you know, he, you know, he, you know, he, you know, he's a, a reporter. I mean, he actually uh, does interviews with famous people. Uh, you know that, you know that Dick Dickens did. And his great entertainment is to go to the opera. So, uh, you know, Walt Whitman is a complete opera queen. You know, he goes there, he writes about it, he argues about it. Uh, Jenny Lind, the Swedish nightingale, uh, comes to the United States. He doesn't like Jenny Lind, so he has his, you know, the way that people have their, their favorite divas that they, that they argue about. He, there's a couple of, of Italian singers and I've written their names down because I had, I had uh, uh, not heard, yeah. yeah. Marietta Alboni, 
uh, is, his, is, is the diva that he really loves the best, who's one that kind of like him just came from nowhere, you know, and, you know, and came up through the ranks. And, you know, and, and he also saw there's a very legendary couple, Mario and Grisi. Uh, these are two of the most famous opera singers of the 19th century. Uh, they worked with Bellini and Donizetti. Uh, and, and whenever they came on tour, he, he was there. So he has this profound relationship with opera, which in a sense is, if you use one word to describe it, is rapturous. He goes there and he goes to performance after performance after performance. I, many years ago, I went through all of his diaries and letters to see what his favorite opera was. Uh, and I'm almost certain, you know, this I talked is, is Bellini's La Sonnambula, you know, the, uh, which is an interesting thing, not an opera done very much anymore, although it's an extraordinarily beautiful opera. But if you think of La Sonnambula, <laughs> this is an opera with, you know, uh, a very slow, very lyrical plot, and it's ba basically an excuse for rapture. Uh, and it's, you know, ex exquisite singing. So uh, this goes on, so we've, we've We've seen Witten born. We've seen at 11 that he goes off into, you know, into the world. He's always in good terms with his family. He always comes back and forth with his family, but he's making his own living uh, uh, as a printer, as a journalist. And at 35, he publishes his first book. And by I mean publish, he self-publishes his own book. And it's called Song of Myself. Now, the title of, of that work tells you most of what you need to know about that work. Now, if, you've, uh, um, if you read the epics, uh, the epics always begin, or almost always begin, uh, with the poet addressing the muse and announcing you know, his theme. So in, in, in Virgil, it begins, Arma virumque cano primus aboris troiae. Arms and the man I sing. I sing about a guy who's a soldier who first from the shores of Troy came. You know, it goes on and on. You know, of man, Milton, of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree. He takes him up, Milton, about 20 lines before he says, I sing. I sing heavenly muse, not the pagan muse, but the heavenly muse. So we have songs. So we have the song of Achilles' anger. We have the song of Odysseus's travels. We have the song of Aeneas uh, fleeing Troy to create Rome. Uh, we have the song of, of how God created the world and how Adam and Eve sing. And now we have the song of myself. Now, and I'll talk about what that means. But you have now, he publishes this poem. And uh, he, do he doesn't, in the first edition, even put his own name on it. Uh, but he has a, port a picture of, of you know, this thing, which is Whitman as a young man, not wearing a tie. See, I'm, you know, in LA, I'm, you know, no man knows how to dress in LA anymore because you know, we, don't, we really don't know how anybody dresses. I mean, I don't wear, wear, wear a tie today or not. It's like, well, I can't wear a tie. You know, but uh, you know, most, most of you know, times people dress a certain way. You never saw an author with an open shirt, a workman's cap, you know, uh, in 19th century. It was a deliberate creation of a self, which is, I am the everyman, I am the worker. So he brings a couple of copies to the local bookstore and convinces the guy to get them. Next day, the guy calls him back and says, get these books out of my store. They're obscene. Mm -hmm. And this becomes essentially uh, 
a theme in Whitman's life. So he, he has a couple of other friends who have bookstores that, that do it. But uh, from the beginning, people think the work is obscene. Now, we wouldn't think it's obscene at all, but there are, you know, but it's, there's a kind of eroticism uh, uh, in this thing, you know, there's, all, and there's often people, you know, bathing naked and things like this. But you could you sense from it, which is a kind of Whitman is open to the world, and, and eros, you know, is always there. So what happens is he sen he sends copies, he reviews the book himself, and says this is a work of genius. Uh, in fact, Whitman writes three three rave reviews of of the song himself, and he sends a copy. Uh, does anybody know who he, sends, who he sent the copy to? Yeah, he sends a copy to Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Emerson writes him the letter that every young art author wants. And he goes, I, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. I mean, it's a little like, uh, I, I believe it's Liszt hearing Chopin, hats off, gentlemen, a genius. Uh, and so, so Emerson, and what does Whitman do with Emerson's letter? Yeah, he publishes it in the book. Uh, and then he puts his name on the book. And, and, and how does he, what does he call his name? Not Walter Whitman. It's Walt Whitman. That too. I mean, you don't, you don't have, uh, you know, you know uh, Ralphie Emerson. You don't have Hank Longfellow. I mean, you know, uh, you, know you have, this is where authors use all three names. And so, so you know, he does, and the book begins to get, a small uh, cult audience. Whitman is not even mildly famous. He's got the book, and now the book is rather unique. I don't have, how many of you have read Song of Myself? Or, okay. Now, if you look at this, one of the things, uh, Song of Myself becomes the title almost of every book that Whitman publishes. He just keeps adding poems and adding poems and adding poems. There are, I think, uh, I have to check this, uh, about 20 different editions. And he just keeps putting things into it. Uh, and the, uh, you know, and, the, and the, the key thing is leaves of grass. You know, leaves of grass is the, it, you know, is the thing which begins, I celebrate myself and sing myself. Now, once again, does it always begin that way? No. The opening line of, of, of Leaves of Grass changes from edition to edition. When I remember Whitman, I've always got to find the edition that I'm, that I'm remembering. So, you know, he has this, and he's still scraping by an existence uh, uh, in New York. Uh, he's always involved in, in politics, not always happily. Uh, he was very anti-Catholic and anti-Irish. I mean, we think of, you know, we idealize Whitman as the, as the you know, as this, you know, the great champion of democracy, which he was in a lot of ways, but he still had some of the prejudices, the, you know, the whole nativist thing. They didn't want these immigrants coming in, these Irish. And so, and he, you know, there's some very embarrassing, uh, you know, newspaper articles that Whitman wrote, you know, against the Irish. But he basically, uh, he, you know, you know, begins to, you know, to identify uh, with, you know, with the, uh, the Republican anti-slavery movement. And so Lincoln, you know, becomes his hero. Uh, and then when, the, the, when Lincoln is elected, what happens when a new president is elected? I say this as somebody who's lived and worked in Washington. 
people go to Washington looking for jobs because you have all these appointments. So Whitman came there. You know, he's been writing about politics. He knows all these people in politics. And he begins to get a series of appointments. Now, I, I, it's almost impossible to go through uh, how, how many he has. But what happens again and again is that he gets an appointment. His somebody shows his boss leaves of grass or song of myself, and he gets fired. Uh, so he gets fired again and again, you know, and, you know, uh, you know, and finally when, this, you know, when the Civil War breaks out and everything is, he's working in the Department of Interior, he gets, you know, you know fired there. He works in the Defense Department, I think, is, I think is where he finally doesn't get fired. But what happens now, in, I'm sure you've all been, almost everybody here has been to Washington, D.C. Uh, Washington, D.C. is laid out by a Frenchman who has a, a very neoclassical sense of a city. You know, so you have, you've got Congress, you've got the White House, you have the Supreme Court. Uh, in, in a European city, what would the fourth arm of this, this cross be? The cathedral. And so when they're do, deciding this, they say, well, let's build a national cathedral. And there is a national cathedral, but it's over on Wisconsin. They said, well, what do we do? And there was a, a, a debate about what you created. And they created, what do they build? Does anybody know? The, pardon? It's not the Patent no, it's the, they build the patent office. And they do this very, you know, because what's America about? We don't have a national church. We don't ask everybody to be part of one church, but we are about invention. We're about innovation. And they create this, and, this, and they actually have, when you get a patent, you have to do a model or a drawing, and they have those on exhibition, and it becomes the most popular, you know, one of the most popular destinations, because this is in Washington before the Smithsonian National, this is the only museum that really exists at that point, and become very, very popular. The war breaks out, and they empty the building to bring in the wounded. And in fact, uh, uh, they even bring in Confederate wounded a lot of times, but it's mo mostly uh, the uh, Union wounded. The Civil War was the most destructive war in American history. More Americans were killed in the Civil War than the uh, First World War, Second World War, Korean War, Vietnamese War, and these uh, Middle Eastern Wars combined. And you think about this, and this is on a much smaller country. So there was just a level of carnage that was extraordinary. And you don't have uh, antibiotics. You don't have really antiseptic surgery. So you, you get a wound, the wound festers. They, you know, they, uh, they cut your leg off, they cut your arm off, and hope you don't die. Uh, and so they don't have enough personnel for this. And so you, if you go to the patent office, just imagine every room full of beds with people lying on the floor. And Whitman, um, and this is, you know, uh, this become, now, you know, so we see him at 11, uh, you know, basically when he's uh, going to the world, 35 when he publishes The Leaves of Grass. At the age of 43, you know, he begins to do this. And this becomes uh, it, the formational experience in his later career. Now, uh, and so he's there nursing these, uh, these boys, essentially, uh, and, you know, as if they're family members. And what he's mostly doing is giving them somebody to die beside. 
you know, I mean, that's, that's, when you say nursing, that's what he's really doing. It's not letting the, the kids die alone. So he goes there and, he, you know, he dictates letters to their parents, you know, letters to their sweethearts. Um, you know, he tries to, you know, he brings them, you know, uh, little things to do and then hopes they don't die, but most of them do die. So, and if you read his accounts of this, it's so-and-so died, so-and-so died, so-and-so died. A little Confederate boy came in, you know, this. Uh, and every now and then, you know, there's somebody who pulls through. So he has this tremendous experience. Now, if you think about this, um, Whitman is a f is, um, has the kind of contradictions which I think are deeply, uh, essentially human. I mean, he feels very much, and I think, and I think a lot of us do, we feel slightly like we're outsiders, uh, but, but in other ways we have connections. And so he's an outsider who really wants a deep connection with the world, with other people, with his nation, which he believes, I mean, if you want a, uh, somebody who believes in American exceptionalism, it's Walt Whitman. He believes that there's something going on in America that's never gone on in human history before, and it's about the liberation and the empowerment of the common person. And so, and so this moment in, you know, in the, you know, the hospital becomes, for Whitman, you know, this kind of, that's his marriage, in a sense, to the country. Uh, that's where he, all of these people are family. Then what happens? Lincoln is assassinated. And uh, you know, Whitman writes you know, really the two great elegies uh, you know, about Lincoln. And meanwhile, he goes through it. And so he starts to develop an audience. Now, Whitman's, d despite the letter from Emerson, Whitman's first real readers, people that champion him, are British. The book comes over there, and the British recognize that this is something really different and really special. A lot of the British writers who champion him are gay, and they recognize, in a sense, he's writing about gay experience. You know, in the United States, uh, you know, they ask Emily Dickinson about, about Whitman, and she says, I have never read him. I've been told that the, that the book uh, is, is uh, disgusting, you know. Uh, I think that's the word that she uses, you know, that it's repellent because, you know, it's not a book that a, a young lady should be reading. And, and uh, even Emerson says there are passages in, in this, you know, which I, you know, I find painful to read. I find him, you know, shameful to read. But so he's got a very qualified, but the British begin to do. But, and Whitman now is a canonic central poet. I don't think he is the greatest American poet, but he is the most American great poet, if you can get that, uh, you know, uh, that reversal. And who, what group uh, has championed Whitman more than any other composers? Uh, almost from, you know, and starting with British composers into American composers, look at, just take, just take two, go to the Groves Dictionary of Music or go to the, uh, the internet and just look at Friedrich Delius, Rafe von Williams, Gustav Holst, just those three composers, and see how many Whitman settings you'll see. You'll just see setting after setting after setting after setting. Because what they recognized about Whitman was you have lyrical language, but it's flowing. And, uh, you know, and uh, it's, not, you know, it's, not as, it's not as compressed, but it's more uh, 
affluent than poetic language. Uh, American composers, I mean, you could, you know, uh, you know, uh, again and again. I mean, you know, you know, it starts really with an American composers primarily in the '30s in the WPA era when people like like uh, about me, my dear, uh, the uh, the uh, Roy Harris, uh, you know, begin to you know to you know to create you know you know works out of him, and you you could be you know, and then it comes through you know, people like Ned Roram, uh, and and once again you can find several hundred settings of Whitman, of which uh, Matthew O'Coin uh, is just uh, the most recent. Uh, I was I was you know you know uh, you know telling some people at lunch today I feel. I feel old because you know Matthew O'Coin went to school with my son, <laughs> so, you know. So it's kind of a, you know, I'm talking about a, a composer of my son's generation. But uh, but let now let's go back to Whitman because I've been talking about Whitman's life. I've been talking about his place in the culture. But let's talk about Whitman as a poet. Whitman has four influences on his poetry, and you can feel them almost at once. The first one is Emerson. Emerson, I don't know who to compare Emerson to. Emerson is a minister, but he, his theological beliefs are kind of, are, are so liberal that he has to resign. And he becomes an essayist and a public speaker. So Emerson would come to town, and literally 2,000 people would crowd into whatever the biggest building in the town. And he would give about a 90-minute to two-hour lecture uh, of these essays. And they are simply brilliant. And, and he is uh, essentially the the root of Americanism uh, that Whitman responds to, which is deeply Protestant, about the, you know, this kind of interiority and independence of your conscience, of your life, and your life as a realization of those beliefs, of, of independence uh, uh, and, and uh, individuality. Uh, you could say, in Emerson's case, almost heroic individuality. And, Whitman reads this, and, and people, the people that are, go, that are go to Emerson, they come out of the, the lecture feeling that their life has been changed. I mean, that's, again and again, you have these accounts. He had to have been one of the best public speakers who ever uh, lived in the United States. And, and Whitman comes out, and you think about this, you know, you have heroic individualism. Whitman decides to become the hero of his own epic, which is to say, uh, you know, in, the, in France, you're going to write about Roland, uh, in, you know, in, in you know, Greece, you're writing about Achilles. In ancient Rome, you're writing about Aeneas. But in the United States, you're going to write up. The epic is going to be about an average person experiencing everything that is in the United States. And by the way, I am that average person. So you've got that Emersonian uh, thing. The second thing uh, is the King James Bible. Now, uh, I imagine we have some very religious, some religious people, not, I mean, everybody, but, you know, some of us are in this room are religious. We have a relationship with the Bible, but we have nothing like the relationship somebody had in the 19th century. Uh, Whitman's family would have read the Bible aloud several times every day. It would have been one of the few books in the house that you read again and again and again. And so uh, Whitman has uh, the, the, the syntax, the music of the Bible deeply in him. Now, what's interesting when they, when the the king during the the the, uh, the regency of King James, they're translating the Bible. What's the decision they had to make about how to translate the poetry? Do you put it in meter, or do you put it unmetered? And what did they decide to do? 
unmetered. They wrote it in free verse because you don't uh, mess around with God's word. So you create, essentially, in the King James Bible, English free verse. Uh, uh, it's not used very much until you get to the 19th century, but, but Whitman looks at this, and so he's saying, okay, uh, I want to create an epic that's about me as the everyman hero of America. The Bible is a holy book, so I'm going to be a prophet. So he uses the language of the Bible in, in that sense. He's a journalist. And so journalists you know, cover topics. And so Whitman begins, in a sense, to say, here I am on the shore of Pominock. Here I am you know, uh, the Niagara Falls. Here I am at the Hudson. So he gives you a set, and he has that journalistic uh, notion of place. And then finally, he has been listening to opera. So his, his sense of poetry is operatic. So he likes you know, the notion of an aria. Somebody comes out and just creates a whole moment that you live in. And you'll repeat the melody, you'll take phrases like this, especially if you think his, uh, Whitman's favorite operas are Bel Canto, Donizetti, Rossini, Bellini, early Verdi. And so he creates these verbal arias. And so this is, uh, you know, one of the ways in which it sounds. I just, you know, if you t t take this. Now, the thing about Whitman uh, is that it goes on and on and on. It's, it's truly a sena, but this is one you probably know, the beginning of Song of the Open Road. Afoot and lighthearted, I take to the open road, healthy, free, the world before me, the long brown path before me, leading wherever I choose. Henceforth I ask not good fortune, I myself am good fortune. Henceforth I whimper no more, postpone no more, need nothing. Done with indoor complaints, libraries, querulous criticisms, strong and content, I travel the open road. The earth, that is sufficient. I do, not want, I do not want the constellations any nearer. I know they are very well where they are. I know they suffice for those who belong to them. Still, here I carry my old delicious burdens. I carry them, men and women. I carry them with me wherever I go. I swear it is impossible for me to get rid of them. I am filled with them, and I will fill them in return. Now, Whitman hasn't even gotten out of the door. You know, I mean, you know, I mean this is a song of the open road, but it's, you know, the, 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 I mean, it's just great stuff. I mean, I ask not good fortune. I myself am good fortune. I mean, they're just thrilling lines. But what he's doing, he's creating himself as this everyman who is going to be, you know, cosmic. I mean, immediately starts talking about the stars uh, and all other people. You know, he will, the ones that he knows will inhabit them and he will inhabit the others. I inhale great drafts of space. I can't, the east and the west are mine. The north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. All seems beautiful to me. That, if you want to summarize Whitman, all seems beautiful to me is the line uh, you know, that, you, that you do it. Uh, by the time Whitman uh, dies, he's a kind of he's kind of remade himself. I mean, they keep, you know, and he keeps changing the portraits in the beginning, you know, the beginning, so every time, every, not every edition, but almost every edition of, of Leaves of Grass and Song of Myself uh, come with, you know, with an older portrait. 
and, he, and after, World, after he writes these elegies to, uh, to Lincoln, it becomes, you know, especially the one that's the least characteristic poem. What's, what's Whitman's most popular poem? Captain My Captain, which is one of the few poems that he rhymes, you know, uh, but it's very popular. And so he, at the time of his death in Camden, New Jersey, he is known, he's the good gray poet. Uh, much beloved, and, and English writers are making pilgrimages to him. Still not as popular as, as the constellation of, of poets around him, Emerson, Longfellow, you know, Whittier, and by this point, Dickinson is beginning to, beginning to be published. So anyway, uh, why don't we just have some questions now? I mean, I know I've talked a great deal, but I just wanted to give you something about the sweep of his life, and I can go on. Uh, uh, but, I, but I think you probably, you know, and I, and I welcome disagreements. Uh, uh, okay, you know, you don't, be careful what you wish for. Uh, the, uh, yeah. Oh, see, it's me. Well, Whitman has very little effect on American poetry in the 19th century. Uh, then suddenly, as you come into the 20th century, and you start, uh, you start to have uh, the beginning of modernism. We have modernist poetry in English is not terribly well understood, because when we study it, we tend to study uh, a relatively small group of people. But if you were in 1915, and somebody said, oh, you know, who are the modernist poets? Most of them are from the Midwest. Uh, and they come out of Whitman, uh, Carl Sandburg, Vachel Lindsay, uh, uh, and they're creating this populist modernism. You've got one coming out of California, Edwin Markham, uh, who was so famous that he couldn't walk in the streets because people would autograph. And they do it, then, a, then about 10 years later, a young man, uh, uh, you know, raised mostly in Joplin, Missouri, named Langston Hughes, uh, begins to, to read Whitman through Sandburg. And so in the 20s, you have this first huge influence of Whitman on American verse, but it's not the high modernism of T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, Wallace Stevens, Hart Crane. It's the populist modernism, of, you know, of Sandburg, uh, you know, Langston Hughes, Vachel Lindsay, uh, uh, Edgar Lee Masters, who you know did Spoon River. Now, that populist modernism is more or less shunted aside by academics, uh, you know, for, you know, for many years. It's really only maybe the last 20, 30 years it's sort of come back. Meanwhile, he comes into to England, and the you know the English choral music, which is so it's Delius begins to essentially uh, set huge passages of it, as does Vaughan Williams. Vaughan Williams' first symphony, a C symphony, is entirely text by Walt Whitman. His, uh, uh, you, you know, you, Gustav Holst, I mean, it has everything from the mystic trumpeter, you know, all you know, these things. I mean, if, if Whitman's setting, if, excuse me, Holst is setting it to music, it's either from the Rig Veda in Sanskrit or it's by Walt Whitman. And I think he likes them for both reasons. They're sort of mystical, uh, cosmic, you know, uh, you know, poetry, and so these things, you know, become uh, ex extremely influential. I think 
the Americans who begin setting them, you know, uh, you know, uh, like Roy Harris, they're not. I don't think they're connected to the to the British uh, uh, thing. I think they're really coming uh, coming out of in the 30s. Uh, you know, when when you have a populist sense, you know, where you know where they're looking. What's the poetry of the worker? Who is the poet they're looking to? It's Carl Sandburg. Carl Sandburg was immensely famous in ways people, you know, you can go to Carl Sandburg's home, his last home in North Carolina, it's a national park. Uh, and it's, you know, it's left exactly the way he was when he was dying. And so the two really famous poets in the United States for the average person were Robert Frost and Carl Sandburg. Uh, and, you know, Frost couldn't stand Sandburg, you know. <laughs> and the reason he couldn't stand Sandburg is he was as famous as Frost was. And they, and they would say, well, where is he? Well, he's probably upstairs washing his hair, he would say, you know. Uh, you know and, but Sandberg was on, you know, on, on uh, TV shows and things like this. And so he influenced this. Then in the, as you come into, this, into the 50s, the Beats, who, you know, you know, uh, who are mostly New Yorkers, but basically gel as a poetic movement in San Francisco, take Whitman as their model. So you have, you know, uh, uh, Ginsburg and Corso, Ferlinghetti, uh, you know, less so, but it, it you know, it comes, um, you know, it, you know, it comes through, and you have, essentially, enters the mainstream, and it also, you know, through, um, through Ginsburg, it, you know, it's it, it becomes part of gay identity, uh, you know, for poets, and so, you know, he, you know, so it's, but, but you think about that. Whitman is, you know, it's not until he's dead that Whitman's poetry has a really tangible influence. There's a few poets around the turn of the century, a school called the Vagabond Poets, who were essentially Harvard guys who went on trips and died young. Um, and uh, they're almost forgotten. I mean, Bliss Carmen, people like this, but they're completely forgotten. They were influenced by, by Whitman a little bit too. But it's, you know, it's really the populist modernists who are Midwesterners, and that's the interesting thing. They're seeing themselves as against the East uh, and, and the Beats. Sorry about being so long-winded. No. Yeah. That's my, that's my pathology, isn't it? Uh, Well, you know, I've been, uh, I went to Harvard and Stanford, and I had the, the best literary education I could possibly have, and I was universally assured by my teachers that poetry would never be popular again, <laughs> that, oh, that poetry was difficult. Only, you know, only the trained intellectuals like you and I are smart enough <laughs> to get poetry. I mean, look at these people. They, they're not going to get it. Uh, and so... Uh, and I was, you know, raised. I mean, I was kind of at the end of that kind of elite uh, modernism. Now, my my odd thing was that I'm from people with no education, and they like poetry. Uh, I mean, I had one uncle who would, you know, I mean, actually, my I had a Mexican uncle and an Italian, a Sicilian uncle, you know, that you know that would, for the least provocation, would begin reciting in Italian the Divine Comedy. Then mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la darita era smarita. Uh, you know, and they would, and my mother, you know, my mother didn't have much education, and she went to school in those barbaric times. Now, I don't know if you can imagine a country so cruel as the country my mother grew up as a working class Mexican woman, girl, 
where they made her memorize poems in school. I mean, can you believe that barbarity? Uh, we should be playing you know, reparations to these, you know, these grammar school kids. Uh, but so my mother had these poems by heart, and they were so precious to her. I didn't. She was always reciting poetry. You know, it was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived, whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child. And my mother would recite these things, and I loved them. I liked the spell that they created. I think it's actually one of the reasons that I became a poet was that I liked this, this kind of hypnotic spell, which when you inhabit parts of your of your memory and your imagination surface in. But uh, I didn't really understand why she didn't, you know, you don't really understand your parents until they're gone, you know. <laughs> and so and I realized that for her, she had a, a childhood of complete brutality. I mean, she lost her mother. My grandfather was not a, you know, not a model father. Uh, and, you know, and she, you know, barely had enough to eat, and, you know, fa her father would disappear. And that somehow, what this poetry was to her, I didn't really realize this until she was really on her deathbed, was a kind of these islands of joy, of vision, that, she, that gave her continuity. And so, so what's the role, to answer your question, what's the role of the poet is that I was told, well, you know, the poet is there to produce texts for intellectuals to interpret, which is, you know, if you're an intellectual, okay, it's a job, you know. <laughs> now, uh, nice work if you can get it. Uh, but I always said, you know, I'm from people for whom there was something really important going on, you know. Uh, and so I have always believed that, you know, the, that poetry is irreplaceable because we all use words every day. Mm. We use words to talk to each other, to talk to ourselves. We use words to talk to God. And as long as we're going to use words to articulate uh, what, it, what we're experiencing, what does it mean to be human and mortal on this planet? What does it mean to go through time in, in this kind of ship of our bodies you know, towards either extinction or eternity? Uh, as long as we use language, poetry becomes valuable, becomes irreplaceable because our, it's our most concise, expressive, and memorable way of using words to describe our existence. And so I felt, as a poet, that my job was to write a poem that I could show another poet. I could show it, you know, the intellectual elite, and they would find good. But that's just secondary. It's about having a transaction with other alert, intelligent human beings. And b believe it or not, I know this is controversial, I don't think human intelligence, the epicenter of human intelligence, is always the English department. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know. You know, I work in one, uh, but I, I find intelligent, curious, alert people, and I find dumb people everywhere I go, including the English department. And so, and so, so what it is, is it's this web of language. Now, as poet laureate, the, pro the project I chose is to visit all 58 counties of California. Uh, Los Angeles County has almost 10 million. Yeah. yeah. It's 10 million people. What's the smallest county in California? Alpine. How many people are in Alpine? Oh. 1,400. Oh. And, you know, so I, I go to the places, the places that I try to go to are places that often have never had a poetry reading. 
I always bring local people. There's always a writer in town. I mean, you can, you know, I've never seen a town small enough that it doesn't have a poet. Uh, and uh, bring school kids, bring the, you know, the local things. So, I mean, I, I'll be there with the second graders. I'll be there with published poets. And we always get an audience. The library is always surprised by how many people come. The bar is surprised by how many people come. <laughs> uh, and so, so who, is, what, who is poetry? What is the role of poetry? Is to give words for people uh, so that they can better enjoy, understand, and endure their lives. Any more, another question? Are we out of time? I don't, I don't have a watch. Now, yeah. Did Whitman ever make uh, a living from his writing or was he just the <laughs> Whitman, Whitman made a, a, a scant living as a journalist. He made irregular uh, money uh, from his poetry and he was not immune to asking for gifts of money, uh, and sometimes his fans would send him money. He just scraped by. I mean, if you look, you can find the room that Walt Whitman died in is in Camden, New Jersey. It's, it's a not a nice house. I mean, it's just a, you know kind of thing. But he was there. And he, he had you know basic you know comfort, and uh, many people, in the same way that he in the Civil War sat by the deathbed of these soldiers, many people came to nurse him. And, uh, and uh, you know, serve as, as company for him in his last years. But no, he never made substantial, uh, never made a, a real living from his poetry. And once he gave up journalism, his living became kind of, kind of uncertain. Uh, you know, yeah, so many people I think have made a living off selling his first editions and manuscripts, but you know, uh, you know, he didn't get part of that. So are we, are we out of time? Or do we, know, what, maybe one more question? Okay, um, I of course I'll be happy to. Um, <laughs> would you, would, would we want to. Do you? Uh, which I, I can do an I can do an operatic aria that I wrote. I mean, this is I wrote an opera called no, the libretto for an opera called Nos Feratu. So it's the story. It's the it's the Dracula story. It's uh, based on the movie by F. W. Murnau, made in 1922 in Germany, and it was remade by uh, Werner Herzog in 1980, I don't know, 1990, I forget what that is. Now, why did they call it Nosferatu? Well, they, it was literally, they stole uh, Dracula, but they couldn't get the rights. So, uh, so they retitled it, and uh, uh, Murnau said, okay, I, I've got to make it a little different from, uh, from Dracula. So he put a, you know, he dropped the adventure part of it and put a little bit of Wagner in it, and he wrote, Actually, the screen, the silent film screenplay in verse. Uh, so it's and so it, when I and when you look at his version, it, it struck me as very much like a like a bel canto opera, so like Lucia about a woman trapped in an impossible, tragic position, which she doesn't have the power to do. So this is the vampire's love song. Uh, now, if you think about this, the vampire has to convince her to come with him willingly. So you know what. What's the plausible argument that a vampire would make? I mean, you know, because generally you don't want to date a vampire. I mean, uh, maybe maybe some of you do, uh, you know. But and so what he what he says is that I'm going to address 
you've always been lonely in your life. You've always felt different from other people. There's always been a kind of darkness inside of you that you've never been able to acknowledge. I acknowledge that. That's what we have together, that I will come in these incomplete longings that you have, I will complete. Uh, and so, you know, now it's usually bad to agree with a vampire's argument, but that's the argument he's making with it. So this is his serenade. I am the image that darkens your glass, the shadow that falls wherever you pass. I am the dream you cannot forget, the face you remember without having met. I... Let me see if I can maybe. I'm forgetting my own work. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, sorry. I can remember other people's work. Um, the uh, it's not that long. I can start it over if I can find it here. Yeah, here it is. Uh, I am the image that darkens your glass, the shadow that falls wherever you pass. I am the dream you cannot forget, the face you remember without having met. I am the truth that must not be spoken, the midnight vow that cannot be broken. I am the bell that tolls out the hours. I am the fire that warms and devours. I am the hunger that you have denied, the ache of desire piercing your side. I am the sin you have never confessed, the forbidden hand touching your breast. You've heard me inside you speak in your dreams, sigh in the ocean, whisper in streams. I am the future you crave, and you fear, you know what I bring. Now, I am here. Uh, so, grazie tanti, but you know, and that's, that, I just end with, the, end with the, that's operatic because it's, it's, you can see the person on the stage. You could, you, see, think about writing an opera, you gotta have, tell the singer who he is, what, you know, he or she wants, where he or she is going. And so you, it puts you in that moment, you know, and, and baritones like this song. You know? <laughs> so it's been a great pleasure to be with you all. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.